Good morning. Uh, kids can be dismissed to the Gospel Project, and uh, glad to be with you. As Chuck mentioned, obviously this doesn't catch God off guard, and we're grateful for His Word. God is unchanging. His Word is unchanging. His Word is true for us today. It was true 2,000 years ago. It's, if uh, the Lord tarries in returning, it's going to be true 2,000 years from now. So we, we can always trust His unchanging Word, and glad to be uh, here with you this morning uh, we're, as Chuck mentioned, in Acts, so go ahead and grab the, your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there's a blue one under the seat in front of you, and we're on page 530 of those blue Bibles. So our topic this morning, as we've mentioned, is the Holy Spirit. And for those who are believers here this morning, uh, perhaps you can relate to what Oswald Chambers said. He said, the Spirit is the first power we practically experience but the last power we come to understand. The Holy Spirit is, is mysterious, deeply misunderstood, I believe. And uh, we kind of, we, we understand the Father. We can relate to that term. We, we, we know what that means. Same with the Son. But the Holy Spirit seems like that crazy, weird uncle who lives in the attic. And we, we don't really ever see him. We don't know what's going on. So we don't know how to relate to him. But in all seriousness, many mistakenly believe that the Holy Spirit is a force or an energy. But uh, the Bible clearly says the Holy Spirit is a person. He's the third person of the Trinity. So hopefully as we continue on through the book of Acts, we'll more and more see and understand who the Holy Spirit is, what His purpose is, and how He's received and impacts our lives. So in in the first years of the 20th century... The gospel had a very small foothold in the nation of Korea, and a a group of missionaries encouraged the small churches that were uh, scattered around that country to send their pastors to the capital city of Pyongyang uh, for the first two weeks of 1907 for a time of prayer, Bible study, and singing. And as they, these about 1,500 men met on the 12th night of, of that service or that time together, A local church leader led the group in prayer, and as he did so, he openly confessed his sin of jealousy of another pastor who happened to be there. And those who remember that night say it was nothing particularly special, nothing particularly spectacular about that confession, only that it was genuine. The next night, the worship and prayer was more intense, and it was so intense that afterwards the the church leaders gathered together to decide what to do. It was beyond what they had expected. They were a little bit scared frightened of what what was going on, and the consensus was that they had asked God for His Spirit to move, and strangely enough, God's Spirit had moved. So they dared not intervene, but rather they met again that night, and one who was present described it this way. He said, then began a meeting the like of which I had never seen before, nor wished to see again, unless in God's sight it is absolutely necessary. Every sin a human being can commit was publicly confessed that night. I know now that when the Spirit of God falls upon guilty souls, there will be confession, and no power on earth can stop it. The next day, the the men returned to their churches, and revival began to spread all across the Korean peninsula. Schools actually closed for days, for, for good reasons, not the reasons we're talking about today, but uh, schools actually closed for days as children confessed and wept over their sin. But this awakening, can you imagine that? What an amazing thing. We should pray for that, 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 that God would do that here 
in the U.S. and all across the world. But this, this awakening wasn't marked just by confession. It was marked by repentance, by evangelism, and by discipleship. Christians paid back stolen property. They made right their injustices. Church leaders carefully evangelized and discipled new converts to Christianity. They would often wait 6 to 24 months before baptizing someone so as not to capitalize on all of the emotion that was going on uh, at that time around everybody coming to Christ. These were also times, though, of great persecution as these new Christians quickly became the, the stalwarts who stood up against imperialist Japan and who wouldn't bend the knee to worship the emperor. And then a second wave of persecution occurred as North Korea turned communist. And yet the Christian movement sustained. Lasted nearly 70 years, the church expanded and grew all across Korea. But the question is why? Why did the church grow in Korea at this particular moment in history? Why was that admittedly unspectacular confession of sin so vital and so instrumental? Why did that moment change the culture for generations to come. Well, as we understand Scripture, and as we'll see in the book of Acts, the only real answer, the only true answer that we can give to that is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is working, worked at that time, and continues to work today. We'll see as we go through the book of Acts week after week that the Holy Spirit emboldens and convicts, and ultimately, and most importantly, revives. He revives people who are dead in their sin. And it's through the Holy Spirit that the church grows. And today we're going to see from our passage the beginnings of this movement of the Holy Spirit. We'll see that the early disciples of Jesus are equipped with the power of God's presence for the task of making disciples of all nations. So what a, what a glorious truth that is for, for them at that time and for us today as we consider that the Holy Spirit continues to do that, to equip us to make disciples. So we, we finished the first chapter of Acts last week. We've seen the conclusion of Jesus' personal physical ministry here on earth, and then he ascended, he said his final words, and he ascended to be with his Father. And Jesus had promised that there was going to be power from the arrival of the Holy Spirit, power to be witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and the end of the earth. And then he left. And now we're going to see what happens next. Sarah Knob is going to come read for us, Acts chapter 2, 1 through 13. Sarah, we're going to introduce as a recommended member later in the gathering, but Sarah, would you please read for us? When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not the, all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, 
what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. Thank you. Great job, right? Tough, tough passage to read. Read well. All right, so no, no denying that this is weird, this is odd, this is strange. It's a weird passage. There's uh, loud noises, divided tongues of fire resting on people, whatever that looks like, whatever that, that means. People speaking in languages that they, they hadn't heard before, uh, never spoken before. Uh, anyone here ever have that type of experience? Not for real. Nobody. If, if that's true, then my professional advice is seek a professional. So this is strange. This is odd. Uh, this is not normal. Uh, but I do, do want you to understand that this is wholly fitting. This is completely appropriate given the nature of the, the historical, uh, life-changing nature of this event. This is exactly what you would expect, is it not? The Holy Spirit has come, and he is changing the church. He's changing the world. So we would expect something this completely bizarre, strange to happen as just a symbol of, of what God is doing. We've been reading Acts 1 of the promise to the disciples that something big was about to happen, that namely the Holy Spirit was, was coming on the horizon. He's mentioned on four separate occasions in that short chapter, Acts 1, and then he's finally here. He's arrived. So to give context, though, to, to all of, of the setting of all of this is happening in, uh, the Jews were gathered together in Jerusalem, as we saw, to celebrate the Feast of Weeks. That's a yearly celebration of the gathering of the wheat harvest. So anyone in here secretly celebrate the, the gathering of the wheat harvest? Nobody does that today, but they did it back then. It was a big deal. And for the Christians, this day is now remembered as Pentecost, the day that the Holy Spirit has come into history, into our lives, into the church age. So it's a day that we should well remember, if not celebrate in some way. But the Feast of Weeks for the Jews was an annual pilgrimage festival. So Jews from all over the region, all over the Mediterranean, would attend to give thanks to God for the gifts of the grain harvest. So some of these Jews had probably never lived in Jerusalem before, but they had cultural ties, they had family ties, they certainly had religious ties, and they were coming back to celebrate. So think of this celebration in a similar way to how Christmas is viewed for the average American today. So it's a time for people to come back home, celebrate uh, some family togetherness, probably even a little bit more uh, religious significance for uh, the Feast of Weeks than, than for the average American with Christmas today. But the point is that there were lots of people in Jerusalem from all over the place. And this was, uh, the, the population of, of Jerusalem was, was greatly increased during this time. So one interesting side note, you have to bear with me for just a moment on this, uh, one interesting side note about the Feast of Weeks that I think is not insignificant for us today. For some devout Jews, because of the date that it fell on the calendar, the Feast of Weeks also became associated with the original giving of the law to the, the people of Israel on Mount Sinai uh, back in Exodus. So in a similar way to the law, the Holy Spirit given to us at this time of festival is, is a gift or it's an affirmation of the new covenant that Jesus brought to us in his life and in his crucifixion and in his resurrection. So at the same time of the year that the law was given to the people of Israel, now the Spirit is given to this new covenant people. It's a turning of the page. So Pentecost is the birth of the church. God has created a new covenant people. So anyway, from the passage, we see that 
that there was this sudden and without, without warning, they heard a sound like a rushing wind that filled the entire, the entire house. This was, this was no gentle breeze. This was uh, something that got everybody's attention. We see that a crowd gathered. This is no ordinary moment in time, no ordinary event in Jerusalem, and no ordinary day in the life of these new believers. So in the language of the Old Testament, in the language of, of Hebrew, wind and spirit are the same words. So perhaps the author of Acts, Luke, is thinking of and helping us to think of what happened in the Old Testament book of Ezekiel, chapter 37. And if you'll recall from that Old Testament book, the, the prophet Ezekiel is, um, describes the Spirit of God working through the wind. So if you're familiar with that passage, or some of you will be as I, as I mention this, you think that Acts 2 is weird with divided tongues of flame. Ezekiel 37 is perhaps a little bit more bizarre than that. But Ezekiel is brought to the Valley of Dry Bones. So imagine a valley stretched out before him, and there's these bones sticking out of the ground. And he is told by God that um, if he will tell these, these bones to live, that they will have life. And he's asked by God, actually, before that, he's asked by God, who, who, who can make these bones live? How can these bones live? And his wise answer is, God, only you know. Only you know whether these bones can live. So he's commanded to prophesy and tell the, the, the bones that they will hear the word of the Lord and they will live. As he says this to the dry bones which is bizarre in and of itself, talking to dry bones. He says this to dry bones, and then there's a loud noise. Is that familiar from Acts 2, a loud noise that happens? And then the bones begin to have flesh. But it's only later when the Spirit enters into the bones that they begin to have life, that life comes in to these bones. So just as in Ezekiel 37, we'll see in Acts that the Spirit is giving new life that God's life-giving spirit has come into this time, into the apostles and into God's church. Now further, we see these bizarre tongues of fire. And what God is doing with wind and with fire in this passage is is reminiscent of what God does in other passages of Scripture. You you remember the burning bush in Exodus 3, and Moses' encounter with the burning bush. You remember uh, John the Baptist saying that Jesus was coming and he would baptize with with water and with fire. So for the Jew, uh, it, was, it was familiar imagery to understand that God is describing himself or presenting himself through uh, wind or fire. That was a familiar thing for them. That was, that was a symbol of God's presence. And of course, the stra- strangeness and the suddenness of this experience only underscores that this was not what the apostles were expecting when they got up that morning. They weren't expecting this to happen. This is clearly an act of God, that something heavenly is happening right here on earth. So what an incredible experience that must have been to to be there and to witness this, to be a part of this. So remember that what we're seeing here is that the disciples are being equipped with the power of God's presence in order to make disciples of all nations. And it's happening very dramatically, in a very dramatic way. But notice also the spirits come with a purpose. Look at verse 5 again. It says, There were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. So this, this multitude of nations, this global gathering, is being emphasized here. 
Even more, there, there are many nations listed out in verses 9 through 11, uh, nations from the north, the south, the east, and the west, and we could tell you today where each one of those uh, places is currently today, but just to broaden it a little bit, uh, you'll find those regions in current Iran, Iraq, Syria, Turkey, northwestern Africa, Saudi Arabia. So from all over the north, south, east, and west, there were people in Jerusalem from all over that region. Lots of different cultures lots of different languages, and lots of bewilderment as well. And this, this probably is hard for us Americans to understand. Uh, we're used to everyone around us speaking American. But even if you travel to another country, even if you travel to another country, the chances are that you'll hear English spoken. You'll find somebody who speaks English. But put yourself in, in these people's shoes. Imagine that you're from one of these regions in Turkey, and you travel to Jerusalem for the, the Feast of Weeks, and uh, you don't expect to see or hear, uh, you don't expect to hear anyone speaking your native language. And in fact, you don't at all, anywhere, until you hear this loud noise, and then you go check it out, and then you hear people who don't look anything like you, who don't look like they know your language, who are speaking your native tongue. Verse 7 says, they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? So again, remember Jesus' final words before he ascended. He's commanded the apostles to spread the gospel, to share the good news, and to make disciples of all nations, and that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So the point of, of that message is that the gospel is universal. It's for everyone all over the globe. And Pentecost highlights that fact as the nations have gathered and they're hearing the mighty works of God, each in their own native language. So Pentecost stands as an undeniable demonstration of God's pursuit of followers from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Finally, before we apply, spend our last half of today applying this passage to our lives, let's focus on the reactions of this incredible work of God. Verses 11 through 13 says, We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. Friends, there are two reactions to this mighty work. Some were open to hearing more and some weren't. And verse 12 indicates that some were puzzled. They were asking questions. That means they were open, at least, to the possibility of understanding more about what was going on. So perhaps we can look at it as they're, they're prepped and ready for Peter's big moment next week that we'll talk about at the end of Acts chapter 2. But others refused to be amazed even at the undeniably unearthly events of that day. They've already made up their minds about these Jesus followers, and they've determined that they must be drunk. There's actually an insult in here as well, because new wine is cheap. So they're, they're not just saying they're drunk, they're saying they're cheap drunks. They're, they're spending as little as possible to get drunk. So, an odd passage, odd things happening here, an incredible moment that will influence the rest of the book of Acts. And I, uh, you see on your, on your Bibles, you'll see the title of Acts, the official title is Acts of the Apostles. And I heard someone say once that uh, perhaps uh, another way to, to title this would be the Acts of the Holy Spirit. 
And I understand the sentiment of that because the Holy Spirit informs and instructs and empowers everything else that we're going to see in the book of Acts. As the early church is formed, as it's persecuted, as it grows, and ultimately as it continues to glorify God. Now there's a lot that we can apply to our lives from these few verses. We're going to spend just the last 15 minutes or so focusing on the truth, the truths or the lessons um, that we can understand from this this first part of Acts chapter 2. And the first truth is that God is powerful. God is astonishingly powerful, and yet we can't control him. So I think there's no denying that God knows how to make an entrance. Uh, Disciples were down in the dumps when Jesus was buried in the tomb, and then God miraculously intervened and raised Jesus from the dead. And then they had to be going back down that emotional escalator, back down again as Jesus ascended to heaven, even though he'd promised something big that had to have an emotional impact on them, going back down again, and then God intervenes in a powerful way by sending the Holy Spirit. Friends, we serve a God who is not distant, who's not uninvolved. He knows us and he loves us, and he's powerful enough to do whatever it is that he desires to accomplish. So yes, God is powerful, but you can see that his awesome display of power resulted in a fair amount of bewilderment. That's because we can't control God. He's not always who we expect him to be. He doesn't act in the way that we would expect him to at times. And in the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis, many of you are familiar with that, there's a character named Aslan, and Aslan is, is a lion, And he represents Christ in this Christian fable. Now, Aslan, of course, is not a lion like any other lion that we've ever noticed or ever ever met, uh, if you've ever met a lion. Uh, (laughs) He's he's approachable, he's kind, he's compassionate, and of course he talks, which makes him different all in and of itself. Yet one of the characters reminds us that he's not a tame lion. You see, God is not a tame God. He's kind, he's good, he's compassionate, he's powerful, and yet we can't control him. Everything he does is for his glory. So no matter our circumstances, we can know that he's loving and he's powerful, yet he may not respond to us in the way that we would expect or the way that we would want. The disciples were waiting around. They'd been told to wait around Jerusalem on the Holy Spirit or power to come. They'd been waiting around. They, they, they didn't know what that was like. They didn't know what exactly they were waiting for. And they got a rushing wind and tongues of fire. Not at all what they were expecting, but it was exactly what they needed. Like the disciples, you may be waiting around with a preconceived notion of what God is supposed to do in your life. I think we all have moments like that. We all have struggles. We all have difficulties like that. I want you to think for just a moment about yours. What are you waiting on God to intervene or to um, fix or solve or resolve? And perhaps you're thinking, some of you, about the coronavirus situation. You're thinking about your income. You're thinking about your health. You're thinking about your kid's school. You're thinking about your school. All sorts of things that that come into mind revolving around that. So, of course, I, I hope you know that God loves you and that he is powerful. I hope you know that that's true. But understand that we can't control him that he will and he does love us in the midst of whatever it is that we're going through. But he's not predictable in how exactly he loves us or cares for us. 
This event encourages us to trust God's power, to trust his love, to trust his provision for us, no matter our current circumstances. The disciples didn't know what they were getting exactly, probably not what they would have asked for in that way, but it was exactly what they need. And God will do that for us. This next truth flows from the context of the rest of the Bible. This miraculous event that we see described here in Acts 2 is, is meant to be uh, is not meant to be prescriptive, it's meant to be descriptive. So what do I mean by that? Well, there are some passages of Scripture that are prescriptive. Like they're commands, like do this, don't do that. Imitate this, don't imitate that. But that's not what we see here. This miraculous event that we just read about is a demonstration of the mighty presence of the Holy Spirit to equip His people to make disciples. So it's a mighty demonstration of God to equip his people to make disciples. So th- this is not the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues that we see later in the New Testament. Rather, here the Holy Spirit is empowering the disciples to speak in known languages so that the gospel could be spread to people who are present in Jerusalem from all over the world so that when they heard the gospel, they would be able to take it back to their own countrymen when they left the Feast of Weeks and went back home They would be able to take the gospel, having heard it in their own language, to the people that they lived with, their neighbors and family and friends and whoever, that they could speak it in their their native language as well. So this is the way that the Holy Spirit equipped the earliest disciples in this unique situation. So we shouldn't expect to get a little divided tongue of fire on our shoulder or above our head or... Uh, We shouldn't expect to meet someone who speaks Swahili and then God will miraculously give us the ability to speak Swahili to them so we can tell about the mighty works of God. We should not expect that. Rather, what we should expect is that God's Holy Spirit will equip us to make disciples in whatever setting we find ourselves in, with our friends, our neighbors, whoever it is that God calls us to share with. Third truth is that Pentecost demonstrates that God keeps his promises. Now, rhetorical question, have you ever experienced an unfulfilled promise? Everybody has. Everybody's experienced an unfulfilled promise before. I, I, just for fun, about a week ago, I typed unfulfilled promise into, or unfulfilled promises into uh, uh, Google, and guess what came up page after page? Politics, of course. So, and then one... One uh, link about Amazon. Somebody was upset about Amazon. So, so. <laughs> all right. Broken and unfulfilled promises are a constant in, in our political lives, I guess. That's the, the lesson there. But that's not true with Jesus. What Jesus promises, what God promises, he fulfills. What he states comes to pass. What he vows, he gives. And what he covenants, he reveals. Now, the Old Testament prophets, John the Baptist, Jesus himself, uh, had promised that something big was going to happen, that the Holy Spirit was going to be poured out in an extraordinary way. And this passage, this event, is the fulfillment of that promise. We're going to look at one of these promises. There's there's dozens uh, in Scripture. We're going to look at one of them. Uh, This one from Luke chapter 24. This is uh, the resurrected Jesus having a, a conversation with his, his disciples. So Jesus has been resurrected. 
It's from Luke 24, starting in verse 44. It says, Then Jesus said to the disciples, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for, for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Clothed with power from on high. What a great way to put it. We just saw that happen. They've been clothed with power from on high. Disciples, of course, at that time when Jesus was speaking to them, they had no idea what that would look like or no idea what that would mean. And God just acted in an astonishingly powerful way. So we serve a God who keeps his promises. We can trust him. What he says, he does. And that's encouraging for us because of the promises that are yet to come. We can trust that he will never leave us or forsake us. We can trust that nothing happens to us without his knowledge and ultimately without his sovereign, holy goodwill. We can trust that when we suffer, it's not because he doesn't care about us or because he's distant from us. We can trust that when we pray, he hears us. We can trust that when we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. We can trust that Christ will return. Friends, just as the apostles before us, we may not get our promises fulfilled in the way that we expect or even in the way that we want, but we know that, God, that what God has promised, he will surely fulfill because God keeps all of his promises. Fourth truth from this passage, and we'll continue to see this throughout the book of Acts, we'll find that the Holy Spirit's ministry is that of, of emphasizing Christ making much of Christ. Uh, the great pastor and author J.I. Packer called the Holy Spirit's ministry a floodlight ministry. Uh, I have a really long quote from him. I, I couldn't cut it down. It just gets better and better. You'll have to trust me on this, so bear with me. J.I. Packer said, I remember walking to a church one winter evening to preach on the words, He shall glorify me. Seeing the building floodlit as I turned a corner and realizing that this was exactly the illustration my message needed. When floodlighting is well done, the floodlights are so placed that you do not see them. You are not, in fact, supposed to see where the light is coming from. What you are meant to see is just the building on which the floodlights are trained. The intended effect is to make it visible when otherwise it would not be seen for the darkness, and to maximize its dignity by throwing all its details into relief so that you see it properly. This perfectly illustrates the Spirit's new covenant role. He is, so to speak, the hidden floodlight shining on the Savior. Or think of it this way. It is as if the Spirit stands behind us, throwing light over our shoulder on Jesus, who stands facing us. The Spirit's message is never, look at me, listen to me, come to me, get to know me, but always look at him and see his glory. Listen to him and hear his word. Go to him and have life. Get to know him and taste his gift of joy and peace. So first, what a humbling thing as we, as we think about this, as we realize that the Holy Spirit is fully God, and yet 
he submits himself to throw all of his attention on Jesus. He is co-equal with God the Father, God the Son, has all of the ability, uh, all of the power, all of the glory, and yet he's throwing all of his attention on Jesus. What a, what a humbling thing for us as we consider our own egos and our own pride. But clearly here in this passage in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit is being highlighted. As we said, he knows how to make an entrance. But if you made an entrance like he just made, wouldn't you expect that you would keep the entrance? Wouldn't you expect that you would keep that spotlight or that attention? But instead, what are the apostles speaking of in their newfound language? They're not just talking about the Holy Spirit. They're talking about the mighty works of God. And there's a lot of mighty works of God to talk about, right? But don't you think the mightiest work of God to talk about is Jesus and his work and what he's done for us in living a perfect, sinless life and dying a death that we deserved on our behalf? In taking our sin, giving us his righteousness, I, I'm certain that those are the things, those are the mighty works of God that were being expressed and talked about as it was the spotlight on Jesus and what he has done. And that's because the Holy Spirit highlights and spotlights Jesus above all else. Fifth, the Holy Spirit breathes life into the dead. We saw this in Ezekiel earlier. It's not until uh, the Holy Spirit had come that these bones had life. It's the work of the Holy Spirit that breathes life into dead souls. We're all dead in our sin and our trespass. We're unable to respond to God on our own. So think about it for a moment. If, if the Holy Spirit did not come here in Acts chapter 2, there would be no Acts chapter 3 through 28. We wouldn't be sitting here if the Holy Spirit had not come. The Holy Spirit brings life to dead sinners. The Holy Spirit brings life to the church. Now, I, I realize in a gathering this size, there's, there's likely a handful here who are not yet Christ followers. And if that's you, let me assure you that, that though you're dead in your sin, there is still hope for you. The Holy Spirit's calling to you now to recognize your sinfulness, recognize that you need a Savior. He longs to breathe spiritual life into you so you might be alive to the things of God. You might have an eternal relationship with Him. There's many in this room who are followers of Christ, and I would just encourage you, after this gathering is over, uh, talk to somebody around you. We would love to share about this life that the Holy Spirit can bring, this new relationship that you can have. We're praying that the Holy Spirit would breathe life into you. And that leads us to our next truth, and that's that the gospel is for everyone. Uh, the clear message of this passage is that everyone needs the gospel. Everyone needs to hear the good news. The fact that the Holy Spirit came at this particular moment in Jerusalem, he didn't have to. He came at this particular moment in, in, uh, in history in Jerusalem when there were people from all over the region who were there. The fact that the apostles spoke in known languages to those around them. All of these things point to the fact that the gospel is for everyone. So I want you to think about the implications of that for just a moment. I want you to uh, realize that there's several different ethnicities in this room, several different cultures, several different people from all over the world. And I, I certainly doubt that uh, all of us grew up in homes where English was spoken. And even beyond that, I would doubt anybody uh, came from a home where ancient Greek was the native language or Aramaic or Hebrew. Uh, friends, the, the gospel is for everyone, and praise God that he has, has brought the gospel to us in our own language. We are 
the end of the earth. And Christianity is not the American religion. So praise God that we hear the message of the gospel in our native language as well. Dude, just take, take a look. Look around you this morning. Look at, look at all the people who are here, who are gathered here right now. I hope you see we're not all the same, are we? You know that just from looking. We're not all the same. Some from many tribes and tongues and nations are here in this little church gathering here in Tempe, Arizona. It's really a glorious thing when we think about a little slice of heaven. This is what it's going to be like when we get to heaven, seeing people from all over, every tribe, tongue, and nation who are united under the name of Christ. The next truth. The Holy Spirit equips and empowers us to make disciples of all nations. So we do nothing on our own. Rather, the Holy Spirit equips us to do what Jesus has commanded us to do. And namely, we're only able to share the gospel, we're only able to share Jesus, and thereby see the church grow through the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in us that allows it. We see that in the disciples. They're camped out in Jerusalem. Remember that this is the very city where Jesus had been publicly humiliated and crucified just, just weeks earlier. The very city where they had abandoned and denied Jesus. And instead of them running or hiding, what do we see? Well, all of a sudden the disciples begin boldly sharing and declaring these mighty works of God. That Christ is risen, that, he, that your sins can be forgiven, that everyone can have eternal life through the life and death of Jesus Christ. So let me make this personal for just a moment. Every one of you sitting here today who is a Christ follower, every one of you who claims Christ as your Lord, as your Savior, if you claim the name of Christ, then you're here because of the work of the Holy Spirit. He has done a work in you. And further than that, many of us became believers because another Christ follower shared Christ with us in either big ways or small ways. You heard about it from your parents, from your friends, from a preacher, from someone who is sharing the gospel. So make no mistake, it's the work of the Spirit that makes us believers in Christ. And it's the work of the Spirit that empowers us to make disciples of all nations. And the final truth today, which we, we touched on earlier, is that there are, there are two reactions, two reactions to God, two reactions to the gospel. We as the messengers, are not responsible for either one of those. We saw in this passage what we always see when the gospel is presented. Some were open to the gospel, asking, what does this mean? Let me ask some more questions, let me understand. And some were closed to the gospel, even mocking the gospel presenters. So, friends, this should be an enormous encouragement to us. If God did an amazing, otherworldly work that day, hasn't happened since in that way. What an amazing thing that God did. If he did an amazing otherworldly work that day and not everyone responded, how should we feel when we share the gospel, when we share our very lives with people, and we are rejected, when we're turned away? Of course, if we're honest, it hurts when we do that. When we share the gospel with people that we love, when we, when we share our very lives and we're rejected, it's, it's tough. It's even worse when we're mocked for that. But friends, it's not our responsibility to convert someone. When someone responds to the gospel, it's a miraculous work of God. And we're just the vessel 
that God is using to share. We began this morning by hearing about the work of the Holy Spirit in revival in Korea. And it's only through the work of God that we see people dead in their sin who turn to God. It's only through the work of God that we see the church built and grow. It's only through the work of God that we're equipped to share and to make disciples. So friends, we ought to pray for a mighty movement of God that he would impact this church, he would impact Tempe, he'd impact Arizona, the U.S., and the world. And who knows but that God will use this coronavirus crisis to bring many to know him. Wouldn't that be something that would be an amazing thing? That would be an astonishingly powerful thing for God to do. We can pray to that end. Let's praise God that he is the one who saves. Let's praise God that he is the one who has allowed us to be the vessel that he uses to share the good news with those around us. God sent his Holy Spirit to us so that we might be equipped with the power of God's presence for the task of making disciples of all nations. Let's pray. Father, we, we are overwhelmed that you would include us in your plan, your plan to share the gospel with everyone. And God, we are grateful that it's not in our own strength, in our own power that we do that. We're grateful that you equip us for each moment as we need it, that you have promised to uh, care for us, to love us, to, to take care of our needs, that you have promised to equip us and empower us, strengthen us to be able to share the gospel with those around us who need, need to know this good news. God, we thank you that your Holy Spirit is here with us today, is inhabiting our lives as believers in Christ. God, I pray that we would submit ourselves to you, that we would rely on you as you continue to do the work of making disciples. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.